0: Okay, we've enjoyed having you in class uh, this quarter, semester, whatever it is we do. Uh, We have enjoyed that. Lord willing, next time we're going to try to go through Judges and Ruth. And um, so if you want to join us in that. And we wanted to say a couple of things tonight about um, Hebrews 4. Three and four, tying, finishing what we started the other day, uh, talking about Hebrews three and four, talking about the biblical concept of rest, and then talking a little bit, just a little bit, about some of the archaeology of Jericho and how that has been used both for and against the Bible, uh, saying just a little bit about that and telling you some places to look for additional information. If we get beyond that, if we get beyond that, what I'm going to do is just ask you that if you have any questions about the book of Joshua as a whole that you think we could answer, I guess it's time to speak now or forever hold your peace since this is our last Joshua class. Um, but we talked about Hebrews 4, Hebrews 3, 7, 7. To four eleven, Hebrews three seven to four eleven, and that context deals with the fact that God mentioned rest in Genesis two and verse two, and then we find when they come, and that's in Hebrews four. I believe it's verse four. If I miss the verse, uh, you tell me. But then Joshua. Gave the people rest. That said in Hebrews 4 and verse 8. And we saw that concept quite frequently in the book of Joshua, that Joshua had given them rest. Now, David later, David spoke. Of entering God's rest. Hebrews four verses seven and eight emphasize it. It emphasizes that chronologically, David comes after, David comes after Joshua. Come on in, we'll get you a seat. Oh, yes. Sorry to disrupt you. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, David spoke about entering God's rest and David comes chronologically after Joshua. David comes after Joshua. So his point seems to be that if the ultimate rest was the rest given by Joshua, David would not have spoken of another day. And so he says in Hebrews 4 and verse 9 there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a rest. The rest that God had from the beginning and that God has invited us to be a part of to share in was something greater than Joshua gave the people. Was something greater than that 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 was kind of a foreshadowing. That was kind of a down payment of a greater rest. But the ultimate rest is an eternity. There remains a keeping of the Sabbath for the people of God in Hebrews 4 and verse 9. And we talked about the other night, or uh, the other day, we talked about how often in our songs Canaan is viewed as a type of heaven and I think that is a legitimate thing to do and a legitimate way to look at Canaan when you take all of this picture into view because it seems like exactly what Hebrews 3, 7 through four eleven is doing. Now, I also wanted us to see just this concept of rest throughout the Scriptures. And, and I'm not uh, sure how far we got But we'll just begin with the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, as the Bible says uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created all things, and on the seventh day He rested. Obviously, our God neither slumbers nor sleeps, as (laughs) Psalm 121 says. He doesn't slumber nor sleep. He doesn't become weary, doesn't become tired, and yet... The Bible uses this term rest. And it's more than simply God needs energy because God is an inexha- inexhaustible source of energy. It must mean something deeper. But it must mean, but, but, but also the amazing thing is after sin enters the world and we disobey God and it creates chaos and confusion in this world. God is still offering us the opportunity to enter into His rest. And in Genesis 5 verse 29, we saw that when Noah was born, that the statement was made by his father that this one will give us rest from our labor. That that Noah's name is a play on the word rest in Hebrew. And it shows us God's plan God's intention to bring rest to His people. A people who are wearied and burdened with sin. I would suggest that that is a big part of what... I may not space this very well. Because I'm trying to get the whole of Bible history from here over. So forgive me, I'm going to have to start... I'm going to have to start squeezing these things together better. But sin enters the picture here. Then we have Genesis 5, 29. And then we have the Sabbath day and all that goes with it. The Sabbath is the longest of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. The longest of the commandments in the Pentateuch. They are to remember that God created the world in six days... And on the seventh day, God rested. We are told uh, the motivation for it, uh, that it imitates God's rest... We are told in Deuteronomy 5, when Deuteronomy 5 tells us that the Sabbath day is connected with God delivering the people from Egyptian bondage. But the Bible tells us that this is a day of rest not only for Israel, but for their their sons and their daughters, their male and female servants, for their cattle and the sojourner that stays with you. All of them are encompassed in this particular rest and I would say and I don't know if they properly understood this at all and I don't know if I would have either if I would have been there but I think that was kind of a picture kind of a foreshadowing of the ultimate rest in heaven now I would say too That rest has more of an idea of everything being right with God and a relationship with God being right than it means simply a cessation from work. Now, I know the Sabbath day, you did not work. You did not labor. And we don't have that kind of command associated with Sunday. And we may talk about that a little bit more and work in some things with that. Uh, But it it emphasizes something about a relationship with God being restored and, 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 and all being right with God. Now, closely associated with the Sabbath day was also the Sabbath year. And you read about that in passages like Exodus 23 and verses 10 through 12. Exodus 23 verses 10 through 12, where the Bible talks about six days you are to do your work, on the seventh day you'll cease from your labor. In in verses 10 and 11, that was verse 12, verse 10 and 11, you'll sow your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the needy of your people may eat whatever they leave; the beasts of the field may eat, and you're to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So, not only did they rest the seventh day, but they rested the seventh year, and the seventh year was also connected to the jubilee year. And you remember other things that happened in that year: debts were forgiven. Debts were forgiven. Slaves were set free. And if you had owned a piece of land that you were forced to sell because of debt, you got it back in the Jubilee year. The, Jubilee year. the others happen every seven years as well in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 15. But, but what I'm trying to stress, all of these things are a picture of what was wrong being set right. What was not going well being healed and your debts are forgiven, uh, your uh, slaves are set free. Again, this is a foreshadowing of a greater rest that God has promised in heaven. And I would also say, there there was, I think, and I may have forgotten something from Leviticus 16 that gives this calendar of Israel and what they did throughout the year. But in Leviticus 16, there's only one other day besides the weekly Sabbath that is a Sabbath of complete rest. What would you guess, even if you don't know offhand, what would you guess that might be? Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. Was that a guess or did you remember that?
1: A little bit of both. I was pretty sure it was Day of Atonement, but if you ask for a chapter and
0: verse I don't yeah, one of those. Yeah, it's it's in Leviticus 16, 29 to 34. I think it's around verse 31. But my point, I, I think that's a good guess anyway, Sarah, because how many of these feasts were kind of one day feasts? And that was such a one day. But think about the Day of Atonement and what it meant. And it dealt with forgiveness of sins. And that's a day of complete rest. And maybe and I'm putting up Leviticus 16 30 and 31 that should encompass it. If it doesn't it, you tell me and I'll straighten it out. <laughs> but is that right? Okay. My point is this idea of rest is also connected with forgiveness of sins. Isn't it? You see the connection? Between forgiveness of sins and rest And you even see that. Okay? Next stage is what's right above. Joshua gives the people rest when they are given the land of Canaan. They're given the land of Canaan. In Joshua 21... Verse 44, Joshua 22 verse 4, Joshua 23 verse 1, it emphasizes that the land, that they had rest after God gave them the land. That statement will be also be made at least once in the book of Judges, in Judges 3 and verse 11, but the conquest of the land, So, you've seen the Sabbath day is a picture of that rest, a greater rest to come. The land of Canaan is a picture of that. What else in the Old Testament would belong in this uh, picture of rest? What else?
1: Maybe kind of um, Solomon's reign in that... They, there were, they didn't have to fight their enemies. They had been given rest. Okay. Other things that
0: were wrong with that rain, but okay.
1: that would be a possible.
0: Yes, and, 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 and that is a good, it's a good answer. I would, I would tie it more tightly, Sarah, with what Solomon does in building the temple, because it seems like a lot of times in the Bible that. The building of the temple is connected with rest. When the Bible, when David wants to build the Lord a house in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, it emphasizes the Lord had given him rest from his enemies on every side. And the Lord had given him rest. And so um, he wants to build the temple. Now it's very interesting. 1 Chronicles 17 is a very, very close parallel to 2 Samuel 7. But if you compare them, 1 Chronicles Chronicles 17 does not use the word rest like Samuel does because it seems to reserve that word rest for when the temple is actually built. In Solomon's time. I do, though, want you, uh, and what Sarah said, I mean, it is a good statement. Even Solomon's name is an indication of something. Uh, look at 1 Chronicles 22. 1 Chronicles 22, uh, verses 6 through 10. Amanda, would you read these out loud for us? Verses 6 through 10, 1 Chronicles 22.
1: Then he called for his son Solomon, and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house, to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood, and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name, because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around. His name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever.
0: Okay. Solomon. Um, these are the consonants of Solomon's name in Hebrew. Now, I know that all that's not going to mean anything to you. But I want to show you this. This is the word peace in Hebrew. Now, this and this is the same letter. It's the same letter, but it takes a different form when it's the last letter of a word okay so this is the word peace and you've heard this word before shalom shalom. I remember years ago uh, visiting New York City and the man's uh, apartment uh, that he was renting was owned by a Jewish man and it had in Hebrew letters written on the door shalom and uh, but that, that's a great word to the Jewish people and it signifies all that's good, all that's right. But Solomon is going to be a man of peace. His very name is a play on the word peace. He's going to be a man of peace and also this passage says he's going to be a man of rest too. And it's like Sarah said, Solomon's time was a time for rest. I'll give him rest from all his enemies on every side. But it seems to me, as you see in context, this rest is particularly tied with the building of the temple. It's tied with the building of the temple. So the building of the temple was also an important stage in this... This development, and so you see, all along, God is giving rest, some level of rest to His people, but it's not the ultimate rest that is foreshadowed for all of those. I want to make a little detour, as Sarah's, agree, but look at Ruth one. If, if your question's about Solomon, go ahead and ask it, because this is, goes a little different direction.
1: I'm just going to ask, what, How do you spell Salem? In
0: it would be. If it's,
1: is it? It
0: would be the same three concepts. Same, conscience. Conscience? Okay. Mm-hmm. I, same I, three concepts. I have
1: this feeling it might
0: be. King of Salem, that is King of Peace. You remember Hebrews, Hebrews seven, seven King which would have been an argument first. that anybody who spoke yeah. in Hebrew, I mean, they would recognize that argument right off. We look at that and we say, "What?" You know. Uh, it's just like uh, you, you know, that vision um, where Amos, the Lord says to Amos. I like the way it says it. It says, Amos saw a vision of summer fruit. And it says, what do you see, Amos? And it says, a vision of summer fruit. (laughs) I see see summer fruit. They'll say exactly what God said was going to happen. And then God says, that's right. And an end is coming for Israel. And we look at that and we think, what does the summer fruit have to do with that? But in Hebrew, those words had the same consonants I think they had the same consonants but there's it's a word play it's made, it's the fruit and the end and there are all kinds of things like that all kinds of things like like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 sees the vision of the almond tree and in, and then again there's a word play there that made perfect sense I mean they, if you were if we were teaching a Bible class, in 600 BC, we wouldn't have to explain that, you know, because we would have all just seen it right there in our text. But the passage that I was going to mention is Ruth 1. Uh, Paul, if you'll just read Ruth 1:9, it's a little bit different than these points, but just go ahead and read this. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Okay, this is Naomi telling her daughter-in-laws to go back home. But she says, I want you to find rest in the house of a husband. And I would say this is not so much a picture of something that happens in salvation history, but this is an important part of the picture. To have a godly home the way that God expects is to have a foreshadowing of that final rest that God has prepared for His people. It is a a picture of a peace and rest and a right relationship that is going to be fulfilled in a greater way in eternity. Okay. Okay. We've, we've looked at this and these are major points of old this Old Testament concept. I'm not saying I haven't left something out. And if you know something I should add, again, speak now or forever hold your peace. But um, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest from your soul. So, this kind of rest that God has been inviting us to from the beginning of creation which He foreshadowed in the land of Canaan and which He foreshadowed in the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year requirement which He spoke about in the building of the temple. All of these find a richer and deeper fulfillment in Jesus. Come unto me all ye who are weak and heavy laden uh, and I will give you Rest. I will give you rest. But ultimately, the final rest for the people of God is going to come in heaven. Look at Revelation 14. Revelation 14. First of all, we're going to see that for the wicked, there is no rest. For the righteous, there is a hope of rest. And a promise of rest. Uh, Christy, did you have your Bible open there to Revelation 14? I'm, I'm sorry, I was thinking you had it open to that passage. You may, Susie, Revelation 14, 9 through 13, if you would.
1: Then another angel, the third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand... He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image. And whoever receives the mark of his name, here is the perseverance of the saints who keeps the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Why? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them.
0: Okay, very good. Very good. Um, Those who are lost... The Bible says have no rest in Revelation 14 verse 11. They have no rest who worship the beast and his image. No rest. But then those who are saved they have rest from their labors in Revelation 14 13. They will rest From their labors, the text will tell And their deeds will follow them. Now, again, I don't think rest just necessarily means we sit there and do nothing for eternity. Uh, There haven't been too many days in my life. There weren't too many days in my life that I I missed school growing up. um, And... You know, usually when I missed school, I was feeling pretty bad. Uh, if, I, if I wouldn't, wasn't feeling bad, I'd have been in trouble for that too. But I was feeling pretty bad, and sometimes we just lay down all those days, or most of those days. And when you've been laying down most of the day, and you get up, even when you're young, you feel kind of dizzy, and kind of, You know, it it doesn't feel good. I mean, it may sound good, theoretically, to lie in bed all day. But sometimes it's a very hard thing to do. Now, maybe as I get older, I should do it a little bit more. I don't know. But we understand that just rest with nothing to do can be a burden in itself. I don't know what we are going to do in heaven. I don't know all it's going to be like. But remember there's a parable in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, about the one who gained five minas. He was given five minas, he gained, or given one mina. Everybody in that parable was given one mina. He gained five minas, and it says he will be put over, uh, I believe it says five cities or ten cities. But the point is, there was something for him to do. There was something for him to do. I don't know what eternity is going to be like. I'm not saying it's just constantly reclining all the time when I'm talking about rest, but I am talking about a relationship that is perfected, that is restored, perfect fellowship with God, a perfect fellowship that everything that comes before only foreshadows. But that, is the final realization of all of it. And that's what God has prepared for His people. There is no burden of sin. That curse has been removed. And think how different our world would be if we just kept, outside of the Sabbath commandment, the other commandments. If there was no murder... No stealing. None of those things. How much better the world would be? And when you think about all sin removed, my, I don't think there's ever been anything like that that we can compare to that. I have it. <laughs> we have law and order and Systematic way of living, all that helps. Yes. All that helps. Yes. You know, it's not. It's not uh, wild, wild. you know. You're not given uh, the You are not let free and without any. Yes. Way yes. Freedom implies responsibility. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Correct. In their restraints to freedom, freedom. And, and if you look at our culture. A lot of the arguments are what is freedom? To some people, it is the right to be able to kill your child at any point during pregnancy. That's the ultimate demonstration of freedom. But a lot of those places who say that, and who even on billboards, try to invite people around here to move up there where you can have that freedom. They won't let you have a gas stove. Wow. Which is more fundamental to life in those two things? Which is more a fundamental freedom? <laughs> but freedom always implies responsibilities. But I'm sorry I had on a tangent, okay? I mean, I think what I said is true, but I didn't mean to get off. But, but they, yes, but it was, it was you, 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 you led me on that, uh, <laughs> Matthew. So, thank so, you.
1: We were talking about hymns. A hymn that came to mind when we were talking about this is called A Foretaste of Your Rest. Gracious Father, Friend Divine, Consolation of the Blessed, You have touched this day of time with the foretaste of your rest. Though tomorrow care may come, trial arise and grief ensue. Now I thank you for the time I have spent in joy with you. Should this hour of rest depart and the joy it brings me cease, I will bear it in my heart as a promise of your peace. When I strain beneath you woe or contend with future sin, from this moment I may know you will bless my life again. Father, though I cannot see how my path will end below, still I know you wait for me where my heart has longed to go. When my body cannot stand, take my spirit to your breast. With the Father's gentle hands, bear my soul to Sabbath rest. Wow.
0: Wow. What is the name of that song
1: again? A Taste Fortes- of Your Rest. It's one of Matt Baskert's.
0: Well, That is a deep song. Mm-hmm. And a profound, a profound song. Thank you for that. I was not not familiar with that at all. Mm-hmm. Matt has written many, many good songs. Mm-hmm. David, you had a it thought... It's
1: really hard to sing, mm-hmm. given his current
0: circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I understand.
1: Uh, you know, talking about rest... In equating that to doing nothing
0: uh, I mean I've been retired for many years and I've talked to lots of other people that are retired and the consensus of just about everybody is when you're retired if you stay busy you really enjoy retirement Yeah. if you don't you hate it <laughs> okay. and I, I ran across this guy was president of the company I worked for uh-huh. He retired I ran across him at a gas station a couple of years after he retired. So just we were pumping gas across from one another and I'm like, well how's retirement terrible I'm yeah. so bored. Yes <laughs> yes and We may not want all the pressures of work, right. but, but to have absolutely no pressure sometimes yes. you know what do you do with yourself right so And I, I want to I would call retirement rest, but it's only good rest if you stay busy. Yes. And I want to tell you, I sometimes think of myself, I like to think of myself as one that's driven and not motivated. I don't have to have an outside something to motivate me. But a couple years ago, Christy had got COVID. And at the time, I had to stay out of school 10 days. I stayed out of teaching school 10 days. They said, oh, you can't preach because she's got COVID. Of course, I never got it even then. And I want to tell you, just a couple of weeks without any class to teach or any sermon to preach I was going to bed at 8 o'clock because I just didn't have anything else to do I, you know so so I know how something to do can be valuable let me say this in passing um, the Sabbath day they, they stopped their work we're not given a command like that on the first day of the week like it's not that you couldn't go out and, and, and mow your yard in the afternoon or something like that. I think that would have been forbidden on a Sabbath. But it wasn't forbidden. It's not mentioned in the New Testament as, as forbidden in that kind of circumstance. But I would say that rest, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but trying to be serious here. I think rest is something deeper than just going to church. In the morning, and getting that out of the way, where you can watch football. Up afternoon, I mean, there's something. Well, there's something more important than that, and that is our relationship with God is front and center, and it's everything to us. I think all of that, you know, is indicated by that. and And uh, I mean, let's make sure that that is a day in which God is glorified in, in our homes in the congregation. But anyway, let's talk... I don't want to miss this. I I want to say a little bit about just the archaeology of the city of Jericho. Now, we read about Jericho in Joshua 6. I believe Paul was teaching in Joshua 5 and 6. Was that right, Paul? But, but, you know, it's, it's not a big deal because you know the story of Jericho... Uh, But some have said, well, the book of Joshua can't be squared with history. Because what the book of Joshua says doesn't fit with what we know from archaeology. Now, uh, I want to deal with that just a moment. Of course, you know I'm going to disagree with that point. Um, But first of all, you have to understand this. If an archaeologist were to dig up something from the ground, it doesn't come with a tag on it. I am a piece of pottery from 1500 BC and I came from here. It doesn't dig. It has to be interpreted. Archaeology facts have to be interpreted like most all other things have to be interpreted uh, in life. And sometimes archaeology is given different interpretations depending upon who is studying it. Now, the city that is believed to be Jericho has been excavated and studied quite a bit. In the 1930s, there was a man by the name of Garsan. Um, Garstein, That he studied the Old Testament. He did archaeology on Jericho, and he 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 said basically the the things the Bible says are true, and the facts that I've found from this city uh, they fit with archeology with the things I've found from the archaeology of this city fit with the biblical story. However. From 1952 to 1958, this city was studied uh, under the leadership of a a lady named Kathleen Kenyon. And Kenyon, though she had one time been a friend of Garstein, came to an opposite conclusion. She said, oh, in the time that Israel came there, in the time that Israelites came, Jericho had a very small population and it didn't even have walls. And so basically she said what the Bible presents as a picture of Jericho wasn't true. That became a scholarly Bible right there to them, to me. To say, okay, that proves it. The book of Joshua, the um, has been disproven historically, and it was viewed as dubious historically. Well, that was challenged about 1990 by a man named Bryant G. Wood. Bryant G. Wood. Now he has, um, he has, uh, I believe, a doctorate. And listen, this is probably a field a lot of you have got doctorates in as well. Pa- Palestinian pottery. Have any of you ever taken a good class on Palestinian pottery? He's got a doctorate in it. Seems like an up and coming field. Uh, but anyway, uh, Wood said listen, Kenyon made some serious mistakes in her interpretation. Of some of the poet, of some of the pottery from the city. And he came to the conclusion that all of this that said the Bible fits historically. We're going to see some specific examples of this. Now, I looked for, if you want to read more about this, I just typed in this name, Bryant G. Wood, plus did the Israelites. Conquer Jericho. Did the Israelites conquer Jericho? That's what I typed in. And I got several articles that came up. I didn't read all of them. I'm sure some of them were good and some of them were not good, but I thought particularly there was a well written, easy to understand one that came up by a group answers in Genesis. Are you all familiar with that group? Okay, that's the group that's associated with the ark uh, in Cincinnati, Kentucky, that that area, and the uh, Creation Museum. But answers in Genesis. So if you read that article, I think you will appreciate it. But here are some points that would make how the biblical story the biblical story fits what he has discovered from archaeology. He made five points here. He said, first of all, there is evidence that the city had walls and those walls... Collapse in the same manner that the Bible speaks of in Joshua 6 verse 5. So he says, no, it's, it's not that those things didn't happen. Those things did happen. And, and some of the archaeology things he points to prove proving, uh, he, he says. Then there is evidence the city was burned. Now, does Israel have a scorched earth policy in taking the cities of Cain? No, they don't. Remember, Deuteronomy said you're going to have houses you didn't build, you're going to have vineyards, you didn't plant. There are three cities specifically said to be burned, and Jericho is one of them in Joshua 6 and verse 24. They burned the city. They also burned Ai, and they burned Hazor. Those are the three cities that they are said to have burned. It doesn't say they burned all of them. But, also, now I find these next things particularly striking. It is stated, Wood stated that his archaeology work, he believed that the city was destroyed in the spring. He believed the city was destroyed in spring because there were large quantities of grain inside the city. Okay. Now, does the Bible say that happened in the spring? Okay. Sarah, you shake your head yes. How does it say that?
1: When they crossed the Jordan, it was springtime and it was high flood. And it was shortly thereafter, after a couple of things that they took the city of Egypt.
0: Okay. And also, she's, it, it, what you said is good. There's one more fact too. You remember this? What, what feast did Israel celebrate? for going Passover. Passover would be equivalent to our, like April. And so, this, when, it, when the Bible says they took the Passover, that does indicate that it was the spring of the year. Now, think, they find these large quantities of grain, but also think about that grain some more. Um, the grain, the fact that they find these large quantities of Uh, Quantities of grain show the city fell suddenly and not after a siege. In a siege, what happened is an army camped around a city. They camped around a city and they would not let any supplies in or any people out unless those people surrendered. And they were simply trying to starve the people out. Jerusalem, they laid siege to Jerusalem, the Babylonians, for a year and a half according to 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52 this city fell suddenly and they find these large quantities. Obviously an enemy has not just parked around there and prevented any supplies from getting in because they had plenty of supplies. And all of that argues the city fell suddenly. It did not fall as a result of a long, prolonged siege. That's exactly what the Bible would show. That's exactly what you would expect from reading the biblical text. And it says that the grain that was left, the grain that was found was left by the conquerors and not taken. Now, in most cases, an enemy comes in, they destroy a city and they destroy its people, they're going to take its food supply. Because that wasn't always easy to come by in the ancient world particularly for an army like this but they didn't take anything isn't that what you would expect when God says don't take anything from the city and so I really think it's remarkable to see points where what Wood argues he found from archaeology fit with the biblical story when you read somebody say something like archaeology disproves this or that, that that the Bible says is true understand that they are giving an interpretation of that which may or may not be true we would argue ultimately is not true and there have been all kinds of things that people have concluded from archaeology that they've later had to come back and retry because they found more and they said well What we had said then wasn't right, particularly about uh, the existence of Belshazzar. I think about that in Daniel chapter 5. Any questions right there about that? Any questions? Okay, we don't have much time. But do you have a question about something else in the book of Joshua that you would like to ask? Something else that maybe you've, we haven't covered it adequately, or maybe you just want more information about um, anything. Okay. Well, it's a blessing teaching it. Never forget. That the key character of Joshua is God, and what it tells us about him and who he is—that is first and foremost. And but also we see in Israel pictures of us. You know, Hebrews 11 uses the people marching around Jericho as an example of faith, Um, and. so there are, these things are significant for us as well. But thank you for being in the class. Thank you, Paul, for the times that you've taught and given questions. And thought, Paul has made good questions. And, um, and I'm, I appreciate that very much. Anything else that you all would like to say, <clears throat> like to ask about? Okay. Yeah. Good. Now, the first first class, I will not be here. I had something ready to give to Brad tonight. I wasn't expecting him not to be here um, to um, to help him a little bit. But first, I'm supposed to be Lord willing in Dayton on Sunday and next Wednesday, Dayton, Ohio. And um, so, but I am going to hope he doesn't get too far. In judges, I mean, slow it down, cover this, savor it, and leave me with most of the book. So uh, uh, that's what I'm going to hope. But I don't know how far he would get. I would recommend particularly that you look as kind of a... a, a serves as a good introduction to begin that section with Judges 2 verse 6 through about verse 21-22 where you see they serve the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders who outlived Joshua, but then there was another generation that didn't serve the Lord. And we see the cycle of the book of Judges. They sin, they're punished, they cry to the Lord, and the Lord gives them deliverance. And we'll see that so often in the book. But thank you guys, and uh, God bless you. And if any resources y'all are interested in from Joshua, whether this, a specific subject, or the book as a whole... Feel free to ask. Thank you.